to hear now God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So in the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we don't know how you have been uh, tilling the soil of our hearts over the past weeks and months to receive your word, but we do pray that our hearts would be fertile soil to receive the implanted word this morning. We pray that you would be with us, that you would give us an open ear and soft hearts, and you would give me clear words and clear speech that I might speak of the truth that is in Jesus, and I pray that you would be with us as you promised to be. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Pax Romana, or Roman peace, was a 200-year period of peace and prosperity within the Roman Empire. It began about 27 BC at the beginning of Caesar Augustus's reign as emperor over Rome, and the Roman Senate had given Augustus nearly unlimited power uh, over the empire, and he used that power to establish this Roman peace. Yeah, it was a peace that was accomplished through military might and a subjugation of peoples. It wasn't so much a true peace so much as there were no other enemies to be defeated. And yet, even in the midst of a geopolitical peace such as the Roman peace and over such a long period of time, that's uh, not real peace. The, the Philippian church lived during this time of Roman peace, and yet their experience, much like ours, was characterized by anything other than peace. They experienced the external conflict of persecution, the internal conflict of disagreements and arguments within the church, and even individual conflict by way of anxiety and fear. And yet Jesus Christ came into the world to give us peace and to give us joy. We've heard throughout this entire book this repeated refrain of we must live with joy, that joy is a necessary characteristic of a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not an optional add-on. It is an obligation. And yet it's very difficult for us to truly rejoice in the midst of such conflict uh, from without or within. 
You know, Jesus Christ came to give us God's peace so that we might be able to rejoice in his peace. And that's what Paul focuses on in this little passage is uh, just this concept of God's perfect peace that is ours in Jesus Christ and receiving that, that peace in Christ Jesus so that we can truly rejoice. True joy is ours only, um, comes from living in the perfect peace of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus. And so uh, in this short passage, Paul kind of gives us three different aspects of God's peace relating to their practical concerns. And so we're going to look at the passage under those three basic headings that God's peace in Jesus Christ is the peace that heals, it's the peace that guards, and it's the peace that celebrates. The peace that heals, the peace that guards, and the peace that celebrates. First, it is the peace that um, heals. Conflict within the body of Christ threatens our peace and threatens our joy in Christ Jesus. But the peace of Christ heals those conflicts. Paul speaks directly to these two women. There seems to have been some kind of conflict that was going on long enough that he was aware of it, and it came, news came to his ear, and he writes in this letter specifically naming names, these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, which, if we apply this to our own circumstance, that seems pretty shocking. Well, most of us can't imagine a pastor standing at the pulpit and naming names of people in the congregation and saying, you need to agree with one another. You need to be reconciled. And for good reason. It's good for good reason that we reconcile behind the scenes in private. And yet for a letter such as the letter to the Philippians, this is a friendship letter in Paul's day. And their custom was to name your friends and to give your enemies the silent treatment. So we know that Yodia and Syntyche, the little that we know, is that they were friends of Paul. He would name his, his friends. So you hear Yodia, Syntyche, and Clement, and earlier we had heard about Timothy and Epaphroditus, but he gave his friends the silent treatment. You might remember back in chapter 1, he spoke of those who were preaching Christ out of rivalry. He doesn't say who. And then chapter 3, he says, watch out for the dogs. He doesn't give them names. And we don't know very much about these two ladies, but Paul considered them friends and co-laborers in the work of the gospel there in Philippi. Perhaps they were among those women that Paul had encountered when he first came to Philippi and he went outside the city by the riverside and he saw Lydia and a group of women praying together on the Sabbath and But now these women are members of this Philippian church, and they're disagreeing about something. Uh, but we don't have an indication of what that is. And Paul says, agree in the Lord. While we don't know what it is, we can be confident that it wasn't something of significant doctrinal, uh, a, a doctrinal dispute. For one thing, um, Paul doesn't have harsh words, not a harsh rebuke for them like he did in other letters about serious issues. And he, he takes a very balanced view. Grammatically, he, he doesn't pick sides. He entreats Yodia and he entreats Syntyche equally. Um, and he encourages them with the fact that their names are written in the book of life. 
And so while these co-laborers are arguing over something, some kind of disagreement, it seems likely that it was not so much a doctrinal issue, but perhaps how to do the work of the gospel in Philippi. And they were disagreeing about that. And Paul says, agree in the Lord. And in fact, it's, it's so, so important that he, he also tacks on this uh, peacemaker uh, exhortation. He says, yes, I ask you, true companion, to help these women in their reconciliation efforts. And we don't know who that is, but I think there's a good reason to believe that that's Epaphroditus, uh, the young man who had came from Philippi and was ministering to Paul. And now Paul is sending back with this letter, this brother who had concern for the church. He's familiar with them, and Paul is adding his apostolic weight to this reconciliation to say, help these sisters agree and reconcile in the Lord. And beloved, uh, disagreements happen in the church, and we, we will disagree at times over how to do the work of the gospel. That, that is natural, but it is not something that we ought to leave to fester. It can create conflict that infects the body of Christ, we must pursue the unity that is ours in Jesus Christ. Paul had earlier said in, in the beginning of chapter 2, you might remember he said, be of the same mind with one another. Well, that's exactly what he's in, in exhorting these women to do now. That wasn't just an aspirational command like, well, well yeah, let's just be of the same mind. He's saying, no, put it into practice. He, he, literally, he says, not agree in the Lord, but be of the same mind, be of the same thinking. Come to an agreement. And notice he doesn't say, like, well, just, just let bygones be bygones. Let's just figure out how to live with one another, agree to disagree. And he says, agree in the Lord. He wants them to come to a unified approach, and this is how we're going to move forward. And beloved, I think that's possible. I know that's possible if we understand the source of the unity, the source of the agreement. He says, agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. We disagree because we are coming from, we're trying to reach a moving target of things that are important in our own heart. In order for us to agree on anything with any other person, truly, we must come together on a fixed, objective point of truth that will not shift and will not move. And that truth is in the Lord, the truth is Jesus Christ himself. He said, I am the truth. And Paul said, the truth is in Jesus. And even for doctrinal issues, big issues, big doctrinal issues, we can come to agreement as long as we are both moving towards Jesus Christ and finding unity in the truth that is in Christ Jesus. Ah, but that's, some people will say, well, that's just too hard because, like, you know, well-meaning people that love Jesus will disagree and, like, there are things in Scripture that are hard to understand. And it is true that, that people that love Jesus disagree, even on doctrinal issues, and there are things in God's Word that are hard to understand. But just because people disagree isn't a reason for us to give up on the pursuit. We are called to unity. We are called to be united and standing side by side for the sake of the gospel of the same mind. That, that mindset reflects a unwillingness 
to listen or a, um, a, a laziness, a lack of love for our brothers and sisters to pursue unity and even a lack of humility to listen and, and to reconcile. And, and just because things are difficult, I mean, Scripture speaks to that as well. You may, may remember from the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that very thing, that some of these things are difficult to understand, but he says, because you are slow of learning, by now you ought to be teachers. We ought to be diligent to con- continue to pursue Christ and to understand him in the fullness of grace. Jesus calls us to unity, and he hasn't left us in the lurch to do this on our own. He, as the very word of God, has revealed to us the will of God. He, out of love for us, has baptized us with his spirit, the spirit of understanding and truth, so that we have the mind of Christ. And united together in the body of Christ, he gives gifts by way of pastors and teachers Paul says, so that we might be built up in the truth of Christ, so that we all might attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So it must be diligent. And as long as we pursue Christ and come together in him, we will be unified. But it's not just um, mental assent or doctrinal either. It's We can be unified in our life. We can, we can, we can profess a unity of doctrine, um, and yet our lives can reflect something different. We've been talking about our spoken theology, what we say we believe versus our functional theology, how we actually live. And we can be aligned on the points of truth and yet be out of accord with how we live. And we can create conflict that way. So we must, in that case, agree in the Lord by aligning our functional theology, our lives, our practice with what we say we believe. And as we do so, we will come together and agree in the Lord. And so, beloved brothers and sisters, where do you need to pursue peace and agreement with a brother brother or sister in Christ? Or whom can you help in this process? Jesus Christ has called us to be peacemakers. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God. Are you being called to be a peacemaker? Beloved, if you know of situations where you need to seek reconciliation or help with the process of reconciliation, by the Spirit of Christ, I entreat you, do so, and receive the healing peace of Jesus Christ. Because there's joy in the peace of reconciliation and healing that comes in Christ Jesus. The second aspect of this peace of God is that it is the peace that guards. Uh, Anxiety and fear attack our hearts and the guarding peace of God protects us from those attacks. We are a anxious people because we are a fearful people. And we're a fearful people because we know in our hearts that we are not in control. Anxiety, fear deal with the future, and we know that we have no true power over the future. 
And so we dwell in anxiety and we dwell with fear. And because we are body-soul unities, our spirits affect our bodies and we have bodily reactions of, as a result of our anxiety and our fear. Being overcome by these anxieties, we have sleepless nights, we have panic attacks, we can have digestive issues, fatigue, all sorts of different ways that these things work themselves out in the body. And because we live in the body, often we try to treat and cope with our anxiety in the body. And so people will recommend deep breathing exercises or anti-anxiety medications or um, Drugs or alcohol is a means of coping with the anxiety and the fear. And because we are body-soul unities, there is some sort of effect to that. Wine gladdens the heart of man. It is a, there is an effect that, that brings relief, but it's only temporary. It's never satisfactory. And if we become addicted to that means of coping and never dealing with the heart issue, it becomes truly idolatry. And we can also cope with this fear and anxiety by a quest for control, for control. Uh, Paul says in here, he says, um, he says, uh, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That there's something about anxieties and fears that certainly make us act in an unreasonable fashion. But there's a particular type of unreasonableness that he's talking about there. That word translated reasonableness could also be translated gentleness. And Scripture has a lot to say about gentleness. We saw one of those in our law passage. We're called to be gentle. The Lord Jesus was gentle. But have you ever considered the connection between a lack of gentleness and um, anxiety? It's when we realize that we're not in control that we start to grab for control. The pastor and counselor Paul Tripp said, the most controlling people that I know have also been the most fearful people. Because we fear what's going to happen. We fear the results of something and we feel somehow responsible or we want to steer the results in a particular way. And so we seek to control in whatever way that we have to our advantage. And it's maybe the volume of our voice or the harshness of our voice or for physically controlling or manipulation or whatever it may be. We seek to control in this way. And yet Paul says, we must be gentle. We need to let our reasonableness be evident. It needs to be evident to everyone. And that can only happen when we recognize that we are not in control, and yet we have a God who is in control. Because he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Um, Psalm 112, verse 7 says that um, the righteous is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting the Lord. We have a God who is perfectly in control of the past, the present, and the future. And he is near us, and he is for us, and he is good. We need to 
trust him. And that trust is worked out in prayer by drawing near to him. He says, Lord's at hand, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, in prayer and supplication, make your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We need to bring these requests to the God who controls all things by the word of his power, who has purposes are good and wise, and entrust them to him. He says, cast your cares upon me, for I care about you. So we offer those prayers and supplications and receive that peace. But it also comes, we also offer those things with thanksgiving. That because the Lord is near, we offer thanksgiving. And that thanksgiving is a true weapon against anxiety and fear. Because in thanksgiving, we acknowledge that God is there. He is good, and that every good and perfect gift is from our Heavenly Father. That even the circumstances that we are in, that we want deliverance from, even those are from Him. And that He is with us, even though we might be walking through the valley of the shadow of death. We will fear no evil, because He is with us. And we can thank Him that we know that the future will be for our good, because all things must work for the good of those who love him. And so we offer thanksgiving to our God. And he says that he is near. Psalm 145, which we had for our assurance of pardon, says the, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, who call upon him in truth. And beloved, that peace as a result will guard us. He uses a military metaphor. He says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's his peace sets watch over our hearts and our minds to protect us from our fears and our anxieties. And beloved, don't forget the Lord is near you. He is near to you, and you don't need to live in the fear and the anxiety that is ravishing your heart. <laughs> Cast your cares upon the Lord. He cares for you. He is sovereign, and he is good, and he loves you. He will give you the peace that defies understanding. He will guard you, and you will have the joy in the peace that protects and guards and comforts. And the final aspect of this peace of God is that it is the peace that celebrates. So as a result of the fall into sin, our experience in this life is marked by pain and suffering and wickedness and disappointment and uh, all sorts of th- all sorts of evil, and it is good for us to ache for eternity. It is good for us to ache for God's blessing, which will be ours in eternity. And Jesus said that, um, "Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted." Uh, it's good for us to have a undercurrent of lament in our lives, recognizing that this is not the way that it ought ought to be, that there's a fundamental brokenness in our lives. 
And yet by focusing only on what is broken and wicked and evil can rob us of our joy. And it's not the way that we ought to live because Jesus Christ is seated on his throne and has been given all authority and power. And Hebrews tells us that we do not yet see him seated in authority. We do not see his authority worked out in this life, but we do see him crowned with glory and honor. And so he is, his authority is now, and this is still his world, and he's still working out all of his holy purposes. And so what Paul wants us to, to, to see is that we can, still, we can see evidence of his goodness in this life, on this side of glory. We can get some of that comfort of our mourning in this life. It's, there's wickedness abounding, and yet not all is wickedness. There is goodness. There is, there is God's glory, which we can see. We have to fix our eyes and our minds on those things and celebrate God's work in the here and now. And Paul gives these lists of virtues, um, which are, they're not distinctly Christian virtues. If you pulled any given Roman citizen off the street and you asked them about these virtues, they would say, yeah, I'm all for these virtues. I think we should think about these virtues as well. In fact, that um, their, their highest virtue was one of the last ones, what they would consider moral excellence was one of the highest of virtues in Rome. But for us who are in Christ Jesus, we know that those virtues are not abstract virtues that are virtuous in and of themselves, but they are virtues that are virtuous only in Jesus Christ. They have value and glory because they are reflective of who Jesus is. Whatever is true, you know, Jesus is the truth and the truth is in him. So for something to be truly true, it must reflect the truth that is in Jesus. Whatever is honorable, Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor. Something is honorable because God says that it is honorable. And so if it is honored by God, then it is honorable to us. Whatever is just, Jesus Christ is the judge just, and he came to be just and justifier of those who are in Christ Jesus. We see his justice now. We are forgiven as a result of his justice now, and yet we look ahead to his perfect justice when every evil deed will be taken into account. Whatever is pure, we are pure in and only because of Jesus Christ, the pure and spotless Lamb of God. His blood has cleansed us from all unrighteousness, and there's, if there's anything that is pure, it is pure in Christ Jesus. Whatever is lovely, he is the lovely King of kings and Lord of lords. He gives beauty as the creator of all things, and he is to be desired. Whatever is commendable, it is we are looking to things that would bring the pronouncement from our master, well done, good and faithful servant, because they are obedient to our God and his love. If there's any excellence, Jesus is the only true excellent one who is perfect in every way on this life and for all eternity. And if there is anything worthy of praise, Jesus Christ is the one who is worthy of all of our praise. And so if there's anything worthy of praise, 
It is because it is reflective of the praise that is due him, and it causes us to exalt him in Jesus Christ. And so all these virtues find their meaning in Jesus Christ, our Savior. What Paul is saying is, if there's anything like that, think about those things. So there will be things like that. There will be things that are evident before us that we can see and we can celebrate God's peace in this life. Most of you have probably heard of something called male pattern baldness. Um, there's, some people have jokingly said there's such a thing as male pattern blindness. Um, and you've probably experienced it. You may not know it by that term, but it goes something like this. Man wants something from pantry or fridge, so man goes to fridge. Man opens fridge and starts looking for something. Let's say it's a, a carton of eggs. Man can't find carton of eggs. He looks high and low. Man remembers something you know, echoing in his head from his wife in a previous situation where she said, well, sometimes you have to move things. So he starts moving things within the fridge, and he still can't find eggs, cart, no carton of eggs. And so he triumphantly declares to the wife, Honey, I think we're out of eggs. Wife gleams with joy and glides over to the, the fridge and she waves her magic wand of an arm and points to the thing of eggs that are right in front of his eyes. And then husband you know, is astonished with wonder as his wife's ability to conjure up uh, eggs out of thin air and she smiles back warmly, glad to help her husband. And beloved, have you grown blind to God's goodness that is right in front of your eyes. Because Jesus Christ is seated on his throne. This is God's world, and he is working his goodness in our lives. Is it in your own heart, in the life of, in your marriage, in your family, in this church, even outside of this world, of this church, in the world? Jesus Christ is has all authority on heaven and on earth. You need to tune your heart and your mind to be able to see and celebrate what God has already done and is doing in the mixed midst of our lives. We need to lift our, our gaze off of all the things that are broken and all the things that are terrible and gaze upon the beauty of what Christ is doing in our Lives. There is true Christian joy in celebrating God's work in Christ Jesus in our lives. And all these three aspects of peace, uh, this uh, healing peace, this uh, comforting peace, this guarding peace, this uh, celebratory peace, these are all in Christ Jesus, only in Christ Jesus. It is, we can only be reconciled with one another because we have a share of his spirit, and we are reconciled in Christ. We can only be guarded from our anxieties and our fears and arrest in his goodness because Jesus Christ has opened the way for us to draw near to the throne of grace, to find grace in, to find help in time of need. And it's only, we can only celebrate what God is doing, what is good and beautiful because Christ Jesus is at work even now in, these lives, in our lives. And because of these things, we have every reason to rejoice. 
So my question is, are you rejoicing? Are you rejoicing? He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Always. And again I say, rejoice. It's not an option. It's not an encouragement. It's a command. It must, it must characterize us. Are you rejoicing? Do you know the peace that comes in Christ Jesus? Do you know Christ Jesus as this source of peace? Because apart from him, you will never experience true peace. The world has lots of fake pieces that it attempts to trot before our eyes, but it never satisfies. True peace comes only in Jesus Christ. He's offered to you. Have you received him? Receive him, and you can experience all these things. But if you've received him, we must rejoice. And if you're not rejoicing, ask yourself, why, what, why, are you not, why am I not rejoicing? Where's my joy? Is it because there is a relational conflict that is weighing down your joy? Pursue that restorative healing peace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Pursue unity. Is it because your anxieties or your fears are anchor on your heart and you cannot rejoice? Draw near to the Lord. He is near you. Cast your cares upon him. Receive that, that comforting, guarding peace. Or is it because you are just, you've just go, grown so accustomed to seeing what is wrong in this world and what is bad? and broken, that you've forgotten how to celebrate God's goodness. So, drink deep of God's celebratory peace in Jesus Christ. Because in that peace, we can rejoice. Because, beloved, we are not living in time of Pax Romana, some kind of fake peace that the world wants to promote as real peace. We are living in Christ Jesus. We have Pax Christi, the peace of Christ, and that is true peace from our God. We have been conquered not by force, but by his tender love for us. We, we await our perfect peace and consummation and joy, which is, will be ours for all eternity, and yet he gives us glimpses of his grace in this life because he is with us, he is near, and he is at work. So, beloved, know the peace that is in Christ Jesus and live the peace, put it into practice so that you might experience the peace that is in Christ Jesus so that we can rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, beloved, rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have drawn near to us and that you have extended your Son, Jesus Christ, to us so that we might be filled with true joy and true peace. We thank you that we have the hope of something that is far more wonderful than anything we could ever ask or imagine. We thank you that you are at work here in our lives even now. Help us to be faithful, to rejoice in the goodness of your love and your protecting power in Christ Jesus. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.